This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The State of Grace by Harold Brodke. Who was Edward? He wasn't as smart as I'd been at his age or as fierce. At his age, I'd already seen the evil in people's eyes. The story was chosen by Richard Ford, whose latest novel, Canada, came out in January. Ford's stories have been appearing in The New Yorker since 1987, and back in 2007, he was the first guest on this podcast when he read Reunion by John Cheever. So welcome back, Richard. Thank you, Deborah. Nice to get to talk to you. Well, you mentioned when you picked this particular story by Harold Brodke that you had first read it when you were in law school in 1967 in St. Louis. That's right. How did you come across it then? I don't even remember, but I, I assume I assume it was in an anthology that I had mm-hmm. had when I was in college, and I just brought those anthologies along with me because I was so afraid when I was in law school that I wasn't going to have anything to read but law texts that I <laughs> that I brought a fiction anthology with me. I, I, I think it actually is in Robert Gorham Davis's anthology, who is Lydia Davis's father. Mm-hmm. I think I had that anthology with me, and in fact, it turned out to be a really both fortunate and fortuitous thing to do. Because I didn't last through my first year of law school, <laughs> and I actually quit and started writing stories. Was it Harold Brodke's fault? I can't. No, it was really Stanley Elkin's fault. Because <laughs> because Stanley was teaching at Washington University where I was in law school, and I didn't cut my classes. But whenever I had yeah. a chance that we were teaching, they were teaching in the same building. I could go across from my from the law school in January Hall over to where Stanley was talking about Faulkner, which he did a lot. And it was really Stanley who did it. Although I submitted a couple of my boyish stories to Stanley, who was the advisor for the literary magazine, and he resolutely mm-hmm. turned them down. <laughs> <laughs> That's a way to get the ambition going. Yeah, <laughs> failure. The chilly, the chilly cold shoulder, as Henry James calls it. And had you read anything else by Brodke at that point? No, I haven't even heard of Brodke. This was that State of Grace, that story is the first story of Harold's that I ever read. I went on in in life in the 80s to to know Harold a little Mm -hmm. bit and uh, to like his work very much. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, you know, now one doesn't, and this is the reason I chose this story in part, now one doesn't think about Harold Brodke anymore. There was a time when the words Harold and Brodke were on everybody's lips in New York. And mm-hmm. uh, he w- was uh, promising the world a great novel, which he ultimately did uh, render. But mm-hmm. he had been up to that point a story writer and published most of the stories in The New Yorker. He kept the world waiting a long time for that novel. Interminably. <laughs> but I think he was actually working on it. Yeah. But he was a... He he became, and you don't necessarily hear it in State of Grace, which is his first published story when he was 24, he became a kind of perfectionist, which is a bad thing to be if you're a novelist. It's right. not such a bad thing to be if you're a story writer, but to be a novelist and to be a perfectionist is almost to doom yourself. Now, you mentioned that this was his first published story. Do you think that uh, it's consistent with his later work? No, his later work was much more polished in, in its in its veneers yeah. and its and its surfaces, and in that way, it's it's not consistent. The state of grace is certainly in no ways not a a an amateurish story by any means, but he he became much more of a wordsmith, I think, than than he was when he was twenty three when he wrote this story. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was consistent insofar as as he's quite interested always in life seen from the inside of someone's mind. Well, do you think that there's anything in particular people should listen for while you're reading the story? I do. There are there are some moments in this story of great virtuosity. Mm-hmm. Some phrases that he that he comes to that that seem to just come just jump out at you from nowhere and you think to yourself when you when you read them, "Oh my goodness, that's somebody who can write a sentence even at age 23." And and there are a couple of other things too. There's an example along in the story of what um, Henry James calls in his preface to the portrait of a lady, conversion into the stuff of drama. He'll give you what someone thinks, and then he will just force it into something much more complex. Mm -hmm. And that's the real mark of a literary intelligence, to understand that I can almost in a reporting way tell you something that someone thinks or says, but then I'm going to put my stamp on it after that with some flight of imagination to give it a metaphorical significance that it didn't have before. 
Well, we'll talk more after the story. And now here's Richard Ford reading The State of Grace by Harold Brodke. There is a certain shade of red brick, a dark, almost melodious red, somber and riddled with blue, that is my childhood in St. Louis. Not the real childhood, but the false one that extends from the dawning of consciousness until the day one leaves home for college. That one shade of red brick and green foliage is St. Louis in the summer. The winter is just a gray sky and a crowded school bus and the wet footprints on the brown linoleum floor at school. And that brick and pale sky is spring. It's also loneliness and the queer, self-pitying wonder that children whose families are having catastrophes feel. I can remember that red brick best on the back of our apartment house. It was on all the apartment houses on that block and also on the apartment house where Edward lived. Edward was a small boy I took care of on the evenings when his parents went out. As I came up the street from school, past the boulevard and its ugliness, the vista of shoe repair shops, dime stores, hairdressers, pet shops, the Tivoli Theater and the closed Piggly Wiggly, about to be converted into a Kroger's, past the place where I could see the Masonic temple built in the shape of some Egyptian relic and the two huge concrete pedestals flanking the boulevard. What they supported, I can't remember, but on both of them, in brown paint, was a large heart and the information that someone named Erica loved someone named Peter Past the post office built in WPA days of yellow brick and chrome, I hurried toward the moment when at last, on the other side, past the driveway of the garage of the Castlereagh Apartments, I would be at the place where the trees began, the apartment houses of dark red brick and the empty stillness. In the middle of that stillness and red brick was my neighborhood, the terribly familiar place where I was more comfortably in exile than anywhere else. There were two locust trees that were beautiful to me, I think because they were small and I could encompass them not only with my mind and heart, but with my hands as well. Then came an apartment house of red brick, but not quite the true shade, where a boy I knew lived, and two amazingly handsome brothers who were also strong and kind, but much older than I, and totally uninterested in me. Then came an alley of black macadam, and another vista, which I found shameful but drearily comfortable, of garages and ash pits and telephone poles and the backs of apartment houses, including ours on one side the backs of houses on the other. I knew many people in the apartments, but none of the houses, and this was the ultimate proof, of course, to me, of how miserably degraded I was, and how far sunken beneath the surface of the sea. I was on the bottom, looking up through the waters, through the shifting bands of light, through, oh, innumerably more complexities than I could stand, at a sailboat, driven by the wind, some boy, who had a family and a home, like other people. I was 13 and 6 feet tall, and I weighed 125 pounds. Though I fretted wildly about my looks, my ears stuck out and my hair was like wire. I also knew I was attractive. Girls had smiled at me, but none whom I might love, and certainly none of the seven or eight goddesses in the junior high school I attended. Starting at about second grade, I always had the highest grades, higher than anybody who had ever attended the schools I went to, and I terrified my classmates. What terrified them was that, so far as they could see, it never took any effort. It was like leisure de main. I was never teased. I was never tormented. I was merely isolated. But I was known as the walking encyclopedia, and the only way I could deal with this was to withdraw. Looking back, I'm almost certain I could have had friends if I'd made the right overtures and that it was not my situation but my forbidding pride that kept them off. I'm not sure. I had very few clothes, and all that I had had been passed to me from an elder cousin. I never was able to wear what the other boys wore. 
Our apartment was on the third floor. I usually walked up the back stairs, which were mounted outside the building in a steel framework. I preferred the back stairs. It was a form of rubbing at a hurt to make sure it was still there because they were steep and ugly and had garbage cans on the landings and wash hanging out while the front door opened off a court where rose bushes grew and the front stairs were made of some faintly yellow local marble that was cool and pleasant to the touch and to the eye. When I came to our back door... I would open the screen and call out to see if my mother was home. If she was not home, it usually meant that she was visiting my father, who had been dying in the hospital for four years and would linger two more before he would come to terms with death. As far as I know, that was the only sign of character he ever showed in his entire life, and I suppose it was considerable, but I hoped and even sometimes prayed that he would die, not only because I wouldn't have to visit the hospital again where the white-walled rooms were filled with odors and sick old men and a tangible fear that made me feel a falling away inside, like the plunge into the unconscious when the anesthetic is given, but because my mother might marry again and make us all rich and happy once more. She was still lovely then, still alight with the curious incandescence of physical beauty, and there was a man who had loved her for twenty years, and who loved her yet, and wanted to marry her. I wished so hard my father would die, but he just wouldn't. If my mother was home, I braced myself for unpleasantness because she didn't like me to sit and read. She hated me to read. She wanted to drive me outdoors where I would become an athlete and be like other boys and be popular. It filled her with rage when I ignored her advice and opened a book. Once she rushed up to me, her face suffused with anger, took the book, I think it was Pride and Prejudice, and hurled it out the third-story window. At the time... I sat and tried to sneer, thinking she was half mad with her exaggerated rage and so foolish not to realize that I could be none of the things she thought I ought to be. But now I think, perhaps wistfully, that she was merely desperate, driven to extremes in her anxiety to save me. She felt, she knew, in fact, that there was going to come a moment when, like an acrobat, I would have to climb on her shoulders and on the shoulders of all the things she had done for me and leap out into a life she couldn't imagine and which I am leading now. And if she wanted to send me out wrapped in platitudes in an athletic body with a respect for money, it was because, she thought, that was the warmest covering. But when I was 13, I only wondered how anyone so lovely could be so impossible. She somehow managed it so that I hated her far more than I loved her, even though in the moments before sleep I would think of her face, letting my memory begin with the curving gentleness of her eyelids and circle through all the subtle interplay of shadows and hollows and bones and the half-remembered warmth of her chest, and it would seem to me that this vision of her always standing in half-light as probably I had seen her once when I was younger and sick perhaps, though I don't really remember, was only as beautiful to me as the pattern in an immeasurably ancient and faded Persian rug. In the vision, as in the rug, I could trace the lines in and out and experience some unnamed pleasure, but it had almost no meaning, numbed as I was by the problems of being her son. Being Jewish also disturbed me because it meant I could never be one of the golden people, the blonde athletes with their easy charm. If my family had been well off, I might have felt otherwise, but I doubt it. My mother had a cousin whom I called Aunt Rachel, and we used to go and see her three or four times a year. I hated it. She lived in what was called the ghetto which was a section of old houses in downtown St. Louis with tiny front porches and two doors, one to the upstairs and one to the downstairs. Most people lived in them only until they could move to something better. No one had ever liked living there, and because of that, the neighborhood had the quality of being blurred. The grass was never neat. The window frames were never painted. No one cared about or loved the place. 
It was where the immigrants lived when they arrived by train from New York and before they could move uptown to the apartments near Del Mar Boulevard and eventually to the suburbs, to Clayton, Laclede, and Ledoux. Aunt Rachel lived downstairs. Her living room was very small and had dark yellow wallpaper, which she never changed. She never cleaned it either, because once I made a mark on it to see if she would, and she didn't. The furniture was alive and frightening. It was like that part of the nightmare where it gets so bad that you decide to wake up. I always had to sit on it. It bulged in great curves of horsehair and mohair, and it was dark purple and maroon and dark green, and the room had no light in it anywhere. Somewhere on the other side of the old threadbare satin draperies that had been bought out of an old house was fresh air and sunshine, but you'd never know it. It was as much like a peasant's hut as Aunt Rachel could manage, buying furniture in cut-rate furniture stores. And always there were the smells, the smell of onion soup and garlic and beets. It was the only place where I was ever rude to my mother in public. It was always full of people whom I hardly ever knew, but who knew me, and I had to perform. My mother would say, tell the people what your last report card was, or recite them the poem that Miss Huntington liked so well. That was when the feeling of unreality was strongest. Looking back now, I think that what frightened me was their fierce urgency. I was to be rich and famous and make all their tribulations worthwhile, but I didn't want that responsibility. Anyway, if I were going to be what they wanted me to be, and if I had to be what I was, then it was too much to expect me to take them as they were. I had to go beyond them and despise them, but first I had to be with them, and it wasn't fair. It was as if my eyelids had been propped open, and I had to see these things I didn't want to see. I felt as if I had taken part in something shameful, and therefore I wasn't a nice person. It was like my first sexual experiences. What if anyone knew? What if everyone found out? How in hell could I ever be gallant and carefree? I had read too many books by Englishmen and New Englanders to want to know anything but graceful things and erudite things and the look of white frame houses on green lawns. I could always console myself by thinking my brains would make me famous. Brains were good for something, weren't they? But then my children would have good childhoods, not me. I was irrevocably deprived, and it was the irrevocableness that hurt that finally drove me away from any sensible adjustment with life to the position that dreams had to come true or there was no point in living at all. If dreams came true, then I would have my childhood in one form or another someday. If my mother was home when I came in from school, she might say that Mrs. Leinberg had called and wanted me to babysit and I would be plunged into yet another of the dilemmas of those years. I had to babysit to earn money to buy my lunch at school, and there were times, considering the dilemma I faced at the Leinbergs, when I preferred not eating or eating very little to babysitting. But there wasn't any choice. Mother would have accepted for me and made Mrs. Leinberg promise not to stay out too late and deprive me of my sleep. She would have a sandwich ready for me to eat so that I could rush over in time to let Mr. and Mrs. Leinberg go out to dinner. Anyway, I would eat my sandwich reading a book to get my own back, and then I would set out. As I walked down the back stairs on my way to the Leinbergs, usually swinging on the railings by my arms to build up my muscles, I would think forlornly of what it was to be me and wish things were otherwise. And I did not understand myself or my loneliness or the cruel deprivation the vista down the alley meant. There was a shortcut across the backyards to the apartment house where the Leinbergs lived, but I always walked by my two locust trees and spent a few moments loving them. So far as I knew, I loved nothing else. Then I turned right and crossed the street and walked past an apartment house that had been built at right angles to the street, facing a strange declivity that had once been an excavation for still another apartment house, which had never been built because of the Depression. 
On the other side of the declivity was a block of three apartment houses, and the third was the Leinbergs. Every apartment in it had at least eight rooms, and the back staircase was enclosed, and the building had its own garages. All this made it special and expensive and a landmark in the neighborhood. Mr. Leinberg was a drug manufacturer and very successful. I thought he was a smart man, but I don't remember him at all well. I never looked at men closely in those days, but always averted my head in shyness and embarrassment. They might guess how fiercely I wanted to belong to them, and I could have been wrong. Certainly, the atmosphere then, during the war years, it was 1943, was that everyone was getting rich, everyone who could work, that is. At any rate, he was getting rich, and it was only a matter of time before the Leinbergs moved from that apartment house to Le Clis de Ledoux and had a $40,000 house with an acre or so of grounds. Mrs. Leinberg was very pretty. She was dark like my mother, but not as beautiful. For one thing, she was too small. She was barely five feet tall, and I towered over her. For another, she was not at all regal, but her lipstick was never on her teeth, and her dresses were usually new, and her eyes were kind. My mother's eyes were incomprehensible. They were dark stages where dimly seen mob scenes were staged, and all one ever sensed was tumult and drama, and no matter how long one waited... The lights never went up, and the scene was never explained. Mrs. Leinberg would invite me to help myself in the icebox, and then she would write down the telephone number of the place where she was going to be. Keep Edward in the back of the apartment where he won't disturb the baby, she would tell me. If the baby does wake up, pick her up right away. That's very important. I didn't pick Edward up, and I'll always regret it. She said that every time even though I could see Edward lurking in the back hallway, waiting for his parents to leave so he could run out and jump on me and our world could come alive again. He would listen, his small face, he was seven, quite blank with hurt and the effort to pierce the hurt with understanding. Mrs. Leinberg would say, Call me if she wakes up and then, placatingly to her husband, I'll just come home to put her back to sleep, and then I'll go right back to the party, then to me. But she almost always sleeps, so don't worry about it. Come on, Greta, he knows what to do, Mr. Leinberg would say impatiently. I always heard contempt in his voice, contempt for his wife, for Edward, and for me. I would be standing by the icebox, looking down on the two little married people. Edward's father had a jealous and petulant mouth. Come on, Greta, it would say impatiently. We'll be back by eleven, it would say to me. Edward goes to bed at nine, Mrs. Leinberg would say, her voice high and bird-like, but tremulous with confusion and vagueness. Then she would be swept out the front door, so much prettily dressed matchwood in her husband's wake. When the door closed, Edward would come hurtling down the hall and tackle my knees if I was staring after his parents, or, if I was facing him, leap onto my chest and into my arms. What shall we play tonight? He would ask that, and I would have to think. He trembled with excitement because I could make up games wonderful to him, like his daydreams, in fact. Because he was a child, he trusted me almost totally, and I could do anything with him. I had that power with children until I was in college and began, at last, to be like other people. In Edward's bedroom was a large closet. It had a rack for clothes, a washstand, a built-in table, and fifteen or twenty shelves. The table and shelves were crowded with toys and games and sports equipment. I owned a Monopoly board I had inherited from my older sister, an old baseball glove, which was so cheap I never dared use it in front of my classmates who had real gloves signed by real players and a collection of postcards. The first time I saw that closet, I practically exploded with pleasure. I took down each of the games and toys and played with them one after another with Edward. Edward loved the fact that we never played a game to its conclusion, but would leap from game to game after only a few moves until the leaping became the real game, and the atmosphere of laughter the real sport. 
It was comfortable for me in the back room, alone in the apartment with Edward, because at last I was chief, and not only that, I was not being seen. There was no one there who could see through me or think of what I should be or how I should behave, and I have always been terrified of what people thought of me, as if what they thought was a hulking creature that would confront me if I should turn a wrong corner. There were no corners. Edward and I would take his toy pistols and stalk each other around the bed. Other times, we were on the bed, the front gun turret of a battleship sailing to battle the Japanese fleet in the Indian Ocean. Edward would close his eyes and roll with pleasure when I went, boom, boom, boom. It's sinking, it's sinking, isn't it? No, stupid, we only hit its funnel. We have to shoot again, boom, boom. Edward's fingers would press his eyelids in a spasm of ecstasy. His delirious, taut little boy's body would fall backward on the soft pillows and bounce, and his back would curve. The excited, breathy laughter would pour out like so many leaves spilling into spring, so many lilacs thrusting into bloom. Under the bed in a foxhole, Edward had a Cub Scout hat, and I had his plastic soldier helmet, we turned back the yellow hordes from Guadalcanal. Edward dearly loved to be wounded. I'm hit, he'd shriek. I'm hit. He'd press his hand against his stomach and writhe on the wooden floor. They shot me in the guts. I didn't approve of his getting wounded so soon, because then the scene was over. Both his and my sense of verisimilitude didn't allow someone to be wounded and then get up. I remember how pleased he was when I invented the idea that after he got wounded, he could be someone else. So when we crawled under the bed, we would decide to be eight or twelve or twenty marines, ten each to get wounded, killed, or maimed as we saw fit, provided enough survived so that when we crawled out from under the bed, we could charge the Japanese position under the dining room table and leave it strewn with corpses. Edward was particularly good at the detective game, which was a lot more involved and difficult. In that, we would walk into the kitchen, and I would tell him that we had received a call about a murder, except when we played Tarzan, we never found it necessary to be characters. However, we always had names. In the detective game, we were usually Sam and Fred. We'd get a call telling us who was murdered, and then we'd go back to the bedroom and examine the corpse and question the suspects. I'd fire questions at an empty chair. Sometimes Edward would get tired of being my sidekick, and he'd slip into the chair and be the quaking suspect. Other times, he would prowl around the room on his hands and knees with a magnifying glass while I stormed and shouted at the perpetually shifty subject. Where were you, Mrs. Eggnoghead? Giggles from Edward. At ten o'clock, when Mr. Eggnoghead, laughter, helpless with pleasure from Edward, was slain with the cake knife. Hey, Fred, I found bloodstains. Edward's voice would quiver with a creditable imitation of the excitement of radio detectives. Bloodstains. Where, Sam? Where? This may be the clue that breaks the case. Edward could sustain the Commedia dell'arte for hours if I wanted him to. He was a precocious and delicate little boy, quivering with the malaise of being unloved. When we played, his child's heart would come into its own, and the troubled world where his vague hungers went unfed, and mothers and fathers were dim and far away, too far away ever to reach in and touch the sore place and make it heal, would disappear, along with the world where I was not sufficiently muscled or sufficiently gallant to earn my own regard. Whatever had induced my mother to marry that silly man who'd been unable to hang on to his money, I could remember when we'd had a larger house and I'd been happy, why had she let it get away? It angered me that Edward's mother had so little love for him and so much for her daughter, and that Edward's father should not appreciate the boy's intelligence. He thought Edward was a queer duck and effeminate. I could have taught Edward the manly postures. But his father didn't think highly of me. I was only a babysitter and a queer duck, too. Why, then, should Edward be more highly regarded by his father than I myself was? I wouldn't love him or explain to him. That, of course, was my terrible dilemma.
His apartment house, though larger than mine, was made of the same dark red brick, and I wouldn't love him. It was shameful for a boy my age to love a child anyway. And who was Edward? He wasn't as smart as I'd been at his age or as fierce. At his age, I'd already seen the evil in people's eyes, and I'd begun the construction of my defenses even then. But Edward's family was more prosperous in the cold winds of insecurity. Where will the money come from? Hadn't shredded the dreamy chrysalis of his childhood. He was still immersed in the dim, wet wonder of the folded wings that might open if someone loved him. He still hoped, probably, in a butterfly's unthinking way, for spring and warmth. How the wings ache, folded so, waiting. That is, they ache until they atrophy. So, I was thirteen, and Edward was seven, and he wanted me to love him, but he was not old enough or strong enough to help me. He could not make his parents share their wealth and comfort with me or force them to give me a place in their home. He was like most of the people I knew, eager and needful of my love, for I was quite remarkable and made incredible games which were better than movies or than the heart could hope for. I was a dream come true. I was smart and virtuous. No one knew that I occasionally stole from the dime store and fairly attractive, maybe even very attractive. I was often funny and always interesting. I'd read everything and knew everything and got unbelievable grades. Of course, I was someone whose love was desired. Mother, my teachers, my sister, girls at school, other boys, they all wanted me to love them. But I wanted them to love me first. None of them did. I was fierce and solitary and acrid marching off the little mile from school past the post office, all yellow brick and chrome and my two locust trees, water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink, and there was no one who loved me first. I could see a hundred cravennesses in the people I knew, a thousand flaws, a million weaknesses. If I had to love first, I would love only perfection. Of course, I could help heal the people I knew if I loved them. No, I said to myself, why should I give them everything when they give me nothing? How many hurts and shynesses and times of walking up the back stairs had made me that way? I don't know. All I know is that Edward needed my love and I wouldn't give it to him. I was only thirteen. There isn't much you can blame a boy of thirteen for. But I'm not thinking of the blame. I'm thinking of all the years that might have been if I'd only known then what I know now. The waste. The god-awful waste. Really, that's all there is to this story. The boy I was, the child Edward was. That and the terrible desire to suddenly turn and run shouting back through the corridors of time, screaming at the boy I was, searching him out and pounding on his chest. Love him, you damn fool. Love him. That was The State of Grace by Harold Brodke, which was published in The New Yorker in 1954 and is collected in his book First Love and Other Sorrows. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.
So, Richard, you mentioned before the reading that uh, Brodke in this story often does what Henry James called the conversion into the stuff of drama. So where exactly in the story did you see that happening? Well, it's about midway of the story, and I'll, I'll read the passage where, where he does it, now that you've heard the story. And who was Edward? He wasn't as smart as I'd been at his age or as fierce. At his age, I'd already seen the evil in people's eyes, and I'd begun the construction of my defenses even then. And here it comes. But Edward's family was more prosperous, and the winds of insecurity, where will the money come from, hadn't shredded the dreamy chrysalis of his childhood. He was still immersed in the dim, wet wonder of the folded wings that might open if someone loved him. He still hoped, probably, in a butterfly's unthinking way for spring and warmth. How the wings ache, folded so, waiting. That is, they ache until they atrophy. I mean, he just, he just, he asks himself this question, Brodke does, via his narrator, who was Edward? And so he basically says, now I'm going to tell you who Edward was. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to impose on your sense of what you might have thought Edward was, something that you never thought of before. And he just, he just simply audaciously imposes that intelligence on the story. Oh, he's also telling you who the narrator is. Indeed he is. Yeah. Indeed he is. And, and, and what, what kind of not only flights of fancy, but what flights of intelligence the narrator mm-hmm. is capable of doing. And in so doing, he, he creates a greater reliance on the narrator's intelligence. There's an interesting thing in the story, which is, you know, it's, it's obviously not told in the voice of a 13-year-old. It's no. told in the voice of an older person looking back. And first reading it, I was assuming that, you know, this was a 50, 60-year-old man looking back on his childhood. And in fact, if you look at the dates and you look at when it was published and when it's set, taking Brodke out of the equation, even this narrator could only have been 24 at the time that the story was published. So he's a young man looking back through quite a short span of wasted years. That's right. And and in that way, the resolutions of the story are not nearly as profound and complete as they might have been had the narrator been many years older than that. I mean, you normally think that in in a bracketed story like this and with a story inside a story, a first-person narration mm-hmm. about something that takes place in the past, that the, the the moral frame of the story is that I can tell this now because it means by telling it I can piece it all together and make it understandable and, and that I can integrate it into myself and I can in that way take governance of it. Mm-hmm. But in fact, when you get to the end of the story, you don't feel that profound sense of governance over the facts by the narrator's intelligence. You just feel that he can just barely tell it. You feel he's still very emotionally vested in it. Completely, yeah. completely, yeah. yeah. It's certainly one of the story's torques, how invested he is. I mean, it's it's a story of sexuality sort of piercing it at every turn, and, and that sexuality is unrelieved and certainly not resolved. Mm-hmm. And it's directed in odd directions. Yes, all over the place. <laughs> to his Wherever mother, it can go. <laughs> to his mother, to everybody's father, to Edward, to yeah. everybody. Yeah, yeah, polymorphous, really. Yeah. yeah. In a Paris Review interview, Brodke told the story about how he wrote The State of Grace, and I'll just abridge what he said slightly. I came home one day and my wife was washing sheets in the bathtub. I had this normal thing about earning a living for my family, protecting them. If there was a danger, I would stand in front of them and die for them, I thought. So I decided to write a story for money. I wanted to do a fancy Henry James sort of story Hmm. about a wicked tutor and a dumb boy. It was going to be about making use and not making use of people. I made a great many notes, but I never wrote the story until one day the story became clear to me. I'd come home from work, and I asked my wife if dinner was ready. She said it would be ready in about five minutes. So I asked if she could delay it about 45 minutes or so, and she said yes. And I wrote the story in the 45 minutes. It was not the story I'd had in mind, but it was a kind of story that I'd had in mind for years. No evil, no Henry James. It wasn't that the story changed conscious direction. It was that I told myself a lie about the story to get started. And all the time it was about a related matter and not about itself, the self I was conscious of. As I was writing, I kept saying to myself, this is wrong, this is really quite cheap. But I wanted to write it only in this form. I would have stopped writing it entirely, but I did want to get my wife a washing machine. And if you believe that, I have a bridge to sell you. Right, so that's my question. Do you believe it? No, not a word. Not a word. Is this a story you could write in 45 minutes? You couldn't. transcribe this story in 45 minutes. I mean, I, I mean that, that's, just, that's just part of Harold's bravado. He, mm. he wanted to make the difficult seem easy, I'm sure. You know, I was yeah. just a kid. I was just a working stiff. No, no, I don't believe it. I think it's interesting, though, that 
he says, as he was writing the story, it felt cheap to him. Do you think he was scared by what he was or worried about the sentimentality of the story? You know, to be honest with you, I mean, we're we're speculating about a man who's both dead and known for not always telling the truth. (laughs) Plus, he is a novelist, and so we never tell the truth. I think he thinks it's a great story and that, in fact, he he was shocked by how good it was. In, in some ways, he's he's wrapped it up in a in a little sheaf of fear and speculation that he probably never felt. And what he really was, and he hated to say, was I thought that was a wonderful story. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think it's called the state of grace? Does anyone achieve that state? No, I don't think it fits the story particularly well. I think it's a story. It, it's it's a title he had, and he stuck it on the story. I mean, I don't see any state of grace achieved in the story at all. You sort of see the opposite state achieved. Yeah, a state of complicity, you might call it. I I was puzzled by the title. Yeah, but, but, you know, that's okay with me. I mean, um, you think about Tender as the Night. I mean, I don't really quite know how that line fits that novel either, Mm -hmm. but it's a great title, and so you remember it, and because you remember it, it fits, ipso facto. So it doesn't bother me that he hung this title on it because it's a good title for something. (laughs) <laughs> you know, all these guys, being a novelist, I can say, is we're just constantly writing down titles. Title comes in your mind and you think, oh, I'm going to put that on something. And yeah, uh, I remember yeah. Ray Carver used to used to plunder into John Gardner's uh, office desk because he was Gardner's graduate student in Chico State. And he would go through Gardner's desk stealing his titles and he would go <laughs> squirrel them away in his own notebook. So we, we, we do that. Gardner should stop keeping them in his desk. <laughs> Yeah, he did. Um, I mean, I wonder about the, this idea of grace, and, and maybe it has nothing to do with the story, but you think that perhaps this narrator thinks he's achieved it in the present tense, and that's what enables him to look back at this time the way he does. What do you think would have changed if this narrator had loved Edward back? I mean, what what do you think would have been different in anyone's life? Well, they wouldn't have had this story. No. That would be that would be one thing. No, nope. I mean, they'd still, have a different story. They have a completely different story. It's, <laughs> it's what I it's what I call arguing the negative yeah. in, in, in a way. Everything would have would have been different. The question poses an, an interesting matter because there are a couple of instances in the story in which the narrator talks about how irrevocable was this awfulness and how he declined to love Edward, even though probably he thought he should and possibly could. I think that's Brodke forcing a point of view onto the story that maybe the actual duff of the story doesn't necessarily make inevitable. Mm-hmm. And that's what novelists do. That's what story writers do. They they do force a certain kind of intelligence that they come up with onto details of the story and hope that somehow in the fusion of those two forces being pushed together, you get some torque in the story. And I think he does, actually. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the narrator is mistaken in thinking people don't love him? I mean, Edward seems to absolutely adore him, and his mother, even he admits through her twisted responses to who he is, only wants the best for him. And he wants to stand on her shoulders, as as, as he said. Well, she has ambition for him. I don't think the story allows you the little keyhole into Mm -hmm. which one could peer to know that. I, I, I just think that we have to be satisfied that that's the intelligence that the narrator carries forward in the story and that it may be an exaggeration, it may be a distortion of what what actually happened, but of course nothing actually happened. Mm-hmm. There's, only, mm-hmm. there's only the story. Mm-hmm. And that's, the story is just infused with this kind of overwhelming retroactive shame. Yes. You know, that this this boy or, or later man feels terribly ashamed of what he failed to do, or I'm not even sure what he quite feels ashamed of. Is he ashamed for having disappointed his mother, for having not been better to the child? What What is he ashamed of? Well, you know, there's a line of Seamus Heaney's in his Nobel address in which, what is it, I even wrote it down, in, in which he says we are, that inside of us all there are contending discourses. And I think inside of this boy, at least, and there's no sense to attribute these things to to Brodke, inside this boy who becomes the narrator as an older human being, 
there are contending discourses and, and, and that one of the medial positions for the resolution of these contending discourses is shame. The story doesn't resolve these things. It just sort of displays them and puts them before us. I mean, you, you can you know you can intuit what some of them are. Some of them are psychosexual. Some of them are just a sense of growing up dissatisfied. Some of them are a sense of not being wealthy enough to keep up with the other boys. But all of these discourses are, are contending in him, and so. I think we have to believe in their authenticity simply because they manage to generate this story. Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing that the boy is full of is anger. And I do find myself wondering what has made him so angry. I mean, there are plenty of other kids who were poor or whose father was sick or dead or that don't have this sort of overwhelming sense of injustice. What would it be? I mean, we all know about people who have an overwhelming sense of injustice and have no mm. right to have an overwhelming sense mm-hmm. of injustice. And what I guess you would say is that he was possessed of an artistic sensibility. Yeah. And it was, it was an artistic sensibility that simply couldn't parse the injustices that's, that surrounded him. But, you know, then the story becomes an opportunity to articulate things which are otherwise unarticulable. It's like stories in which parents admit to hating their children And those stories that they make create a kind of a safe place for those articulations to be made. Mm -hmm. I mean, to have all of these conflicting feelings about your parents seems apposite to growing up, to me, anyway. And under the sort of hothouse that this story creates, they're part of the story's righteous vocabulary. Mm -hmm. What do you make of those strange, dark mob scenes in the mother's eyes? Isn't that a great line? That that's probably the strangest line in the story. It's a it's a it's a strange line, but it's such a wonderful line. It just kind of says to the reader, "Later on, I'm going to be able to do this a lot, (laughs) but but I could only do it here now." Suddenly, just literally, does come out of nowhere. But you know, that kind of moment of virtuosity in a story thrills me particularly in a young man like this, because it's mm-hmm. such, it, 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 it lets you know that he's just, when he wrote that line, found it out himself that he could do that. He has been what uh, Adam Gopnik said about Updike after he died, that he suddenly found himself able to be fully expressed in a way that probably he knew he could be in his heart of hearts, but couldn't quite bring it onto the page. And suddenly, from some little vagrant impulse, here comes the opportunity to say that about his mother's eyes, teeming, and I don't know, one would have to read it again. Full of drama. Full of drama, yeah. Full of drama that's never explained. Yeah. Or resolved, yeah. Now, there's that great line when the the narrator's taking the back stairs. He says he takes these ugly back stairs instead of the nice front stairs, and it's like rubbing at a hurt to check that it's still there. Right. And you feel that emanating through the whole story, that this whole story is him just rubbing at a hurt, which I guess comes back to the idea that, that none of this is actually resolved, that he hasn't made peace with this episode, and writing this is rubbing at it. It, in fact, is. It's a demonstration of rubbing at it, and, and, and it's a way of giving voice to something. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's a way of intensifying the feeling of adolescence and late adolescence to, to rub at something so that, so that it hurts and you don't forget it, so that it, so that it becomes something that you don't just sort of live through, but, mm-hmm. uh, but almost, in a sense, champion. Rubbing, rubbing at memory to keep it alive. Keep yeah. it alive. Yeah. Right. Now, you mentioned um, that when you reread the last few paragraphs... It almost seemed to you like something you might have written. I didn't think that as much after. There was, there was just one line, but I didn't think that quite as much after I read it the 13 times that I <laughs> read in order to be sure I didn't stumble around in reading yeah. it. The line when I said to you on the, um, that I thought it would be something that I might write comes right in the uh, second to the last paragraph. How many hurts and shynesses in times of walking up the back stairs had made me that way? I don't know. All I know is that Edward needed my love, and I wouldn't give it to him. I was only 13. There isn't much you can blame a boy of 13 for. I thought when I read that, when I was reading this, I think I've written a line like that in my life. (laughs) It felt (laughs) familiar. It did feel familiar. It's always slightly shocking and a little bit shameful to think that you'd read (laughs) something completely forgotten, taken it in, and then in a way reproduced that particular little turn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. I forgive myself. (laughs) I think everyone (laughs) forgives you. Um, You know, we talked about earlier about how much 
sort of noise and, and drama there was surrounding when and how Brodkey was going to produce this this great yeah. novel. It seems as though while he was alive, it was very difficult to step back and get a look at who he was as a writer because there was so much expectation involved and built up. When you look back now, how do you place him short story as a writer? writer. Yeah. Look at him as a short story writer. And that, 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 that his greatest achievements were most performed in short stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, not that he wasn't a novelist. I mean, he wanted to be a novelist, and he wrote, and he wrote these two big tormescent books. But I think his greatest achievements were as a short story writer in the shorter form, which, which I don't value in the least, my God. I mean, well, I certainly don't. <laughs> I know you don't. So I, 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 think, I think that about him. And I, I, I think he, he managed to do what, particularly in the period he was writing, can't have been easy for him to do. First of all, he's the same age as, basically the same age as Updike was and mm-hmm. was writing more or less realistic fiction during that time. And Updike was getting a lot from the stories that, that, that he was writing. But also going on at the same time was all of the anti-story revolution in American mm-hmm. literature in the 70s and late 60s when, when stories were turned upside down and characters were thrown out the window and causality was in, was in low regard. And all the time, Harold was trying to work the row he was working and make character work, make in, internal logic sensibility of human beings, make it understandable in regular English sentences uh, mm-hmm. with, with a high degree of torque and a high degree of pressure and with a heightened vocabulary. But nonetheless, they were realistic stories. And so I, I think for that reason alone, and I think he was good at it, I value him. Well, thank you, Richard. Thank you, Deborah. It's a pleasure. Richard Ford's most recent novels are The Lay of the Land and Canada. You can download his reading of Reunion by John Cheever and the 70 other fiction podcasts we've done since then in the iTunes store or on newyorker.com. Download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by newyorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.